Hey friends, this is Holly Goodman, and you're listening to Isaac's Autism Wild podcast, where we focus on topics related to raising loved ones touched by autism and its impact on relationships and family. I'll be sharing some of my personal parenting experiences raising my son Isaac, who passed away in 2007, as well as an entirely different parenting experience as I now raise my son Caleb, who never ceases to blow my mind with his beautiful autism perspectives. So grab a drink and join me as I interview this week's group of exceptional autism parents. All right. Thanks for joining me for another episode of Isaac's Autism Wild podcast. Today, I have my friend Jeff Callis with Lilac City Behavioral Services joining me. You've been a regular on my podcast in the past, and so I appreciate the fact that you're coming back. Uh, The reason why I wanted to record this is, believe it or not, Jeff, um, one of the most common questions I see posted in forums online, and then I get asked, and this is usually for um, parents or grandparents that are new diagnosed um, to the autism spectrum um, disorder category. The question is, what what is ABA? What does it even stand for? Because it's always the alphabet soup, if you know what I mean, Jeff. Um, You're just ASD, uh, ABA, OT, PT, ST, all the things, IEPs. You know what I'm saying, the IDEA. There's just so many acronyms. I call it the alphabet soup. And so I thought maybe you're you're chuckling, but you know I'm right, Jeff. Uh, it is, it's true. <laughs> exactly. I personally have to, um, you know, when I'm reading forums online and they start listing off all of their child's diagnoses, you know, the ODD, ASD, ADHD, it's kind of like, oh, da, 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 okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, wait, I, I think I remember what that one is. Um, so believe me, we all, even though we've all been, we've been in this um, field for a while, it's still, it's a lot to keep track of. So could you tell us what ABA stands for? Well, with ABA, like sometimes it seems we pick some letters out of a hat. Uh, With ABA, it stands for Applied Behavior Analysis. Uh, And what is it? Um, it, It's really an approach that looks at identifying what environments work for kids uh, and and what they're communicating with behavior um, or what skills we can help them build that will help them interact with their environments a little better. I always tell people that um, behavior is communication. And for ABA providers, you guys are the people that really are dialed into being able to understand um, and kind of get to the root at what some of those behaviors are communicating and then work to help them find better ways of being able to communicate in, in different with different behaviors. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I think that's pretty accurate. Uh, we're kind of... Uh, we're our job is figure out the puzzle and what is this kiddo trying to tell us when when he screams and melts down during snack time and i like to say behavior never lies words lie all the time but behavior is always telling the truth and so so looking at when when is it happening when what stops it uh tells you what that kid uh is trying to tell you and just maybe doesn't have the words to say yeah and understand too that that aba is used for a variety of types of kiddos. So understand that when you're listening to this, um, this ABA is not just used for kiddos that don't have language. It's used for um, individuals that, um, and I hate to even say kiddos because we use ABA with even adults. People that have ABA programs and are working with ABA providers um, are not necessarily nonverbal. Correct, Jeff? Correct. Yeah. ABA is a lot bigger than even just working with kids on the spectrum or kids with developmental disabilities. 
Uh, it, it runs the range from day-to-day problems or, or challenges that affect uh, all of us. How do, I, how do I organize my morning routine so I, uh, I get it done effectively and I remember to do all the things I need to do? You can use some ABA strategies to help with that. Yeah. Uh, big corporations use ABA to help organize, organize what they're doing. In the work with kiddos uh, with developmental disabilities, ABA's kind of found a, a niche because the, we're, we can be incredibly effective at building independence. And that can be for kiddos with severe disability who don't communicate with words, but also a lot of skill building for kiddo, kids who do communicate with words. We spend a lot of time working on social skills, self-management, uh, so learning to do routines independently, self-regulation, learning how to calm myself down when I get frustrated, learning how to identify when you're frustrated. I mean, that's hard for a lot of us. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm getting frustrated and realize you're getting frustrated before you kind of hit that blow your top phase. Yeah. Well, what strategies or, or can I do to keep myself calm and regulated? Yeah. So ABA can help with all of that. Yeah. And I always tease that at its basic root, parenting is ABA, just not in a very um, classically trained perspective. Uh, You know, as a parent, my job is to observe behaviors and, you know, um, use strategies to improve behaviors and expectations. And again, there's lots of different positive parenting strategies. And then there's ones that kind of create a, a vicious circle where you're just creating more behaviors. And so that's just it. So just, you know, I always tease that parenting in its most rudimentary level is um, applied behavioral analysis. And we're modifying, we're trying to, you know, sculpt some of these behaviors that parents would prefer. Um, now, with that being said, is my next little lead in, one of my other favorite things. I I hate to say favorite. It's not favorite, but one of the things that I see a lot and I get a little cringy. So I'm so that I'm sure that you do too, Jeff, people will post on online forums wanting to know, um, is this, you know, does anybody have any ABA provider recommendations, not old ABA, but like new modern ABA. And I just kind of chuckle because there is definitely a stigma associated with ABA and what people's perception of what that looks like. And And believe me, if you go online, there are still some online videos of some really old and poorly executed ABA. And so, um, you know, I I wish we could just like scour the internet and remove all of those um, kind of old examples because it wasn't done particularly well by some providers early on um, because ABA is one of the oldest used interventions when we're talking about working with individuals on the autism spectrum. Correct, Jeff? Yeah, I, I think some of the original work around ABA started in the, the 40s and the 50s. I think when people talk about old ABA or kind of have that contrast between strategies that they didn't like, that they've seen as harmful, and, and new strategies, they're typically looking at something that's very compliance-focused on, you will do what I say when I say it, and, and we hold the line until that starts happening. That's pretty unpleasant for everyone involved to experience. And uh, first and foremost, the kid, but also the caregivers and the people working with them. It's not fun to have that kind of hard line. And there's times where we need to have a, sorry, we can't go past this for like dangerous behavior. But for the most part, we can get a lot more mileage with shaping and more positively oriented approaches that are a lot more fun for the kid. Yeah. Our first job is find out what types of environments kids really enjoy and that work for them. And we set up the environment so it works for them while we gradually teach them to work with environments that don't aren't perfect for them. 
Yeah. So that's a really unfortunately good the world isn't perfect for any of us. So but so we 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 sometimes have to know how to interact with it. Yeah. Um, but our first job is find find out what does work. Yeah. And you know what, Jeff, like, while I hate to admit it, like we are living during COVID times, and this is a really kind of good example right now of us all having to kind of experience this and have to kind of learn to accept kind of some new normals and new policies and procedures, and not everybody loves them. And so, um, you know, so change is hard. Change is really hard. I think all of us are kind of experiencing this right now. So we can maybe be a little bit more empathetic to um, what this looks like. So um, let's talk about just the benefits that the children have, um, kind of how it helps the kiddos and the benefits, not just to the to the kiddo, but to the family. So um, do you mind sharing um, kind of what you guys do and the magic that you see happen with the kiddos that you're working with. And I say kiddos, but we'll kind of transition to that too. I want to make sure people understand that it's not just for the little guys. So, but first just tell us kind of um, the benefits and how it helps um, children and families. Well, I, I think it's not magic. We, we like to joke that some days we wish we had a magic wand, but we don't. Uh, ABA can be really hard work. Uh, it's about everyone involved building new habits and being uh, consistent with new habits. Really, we can see kids' clients gaining a lot of independence in working independently on job skills or accessing the community. Kids who would otherwise communicate by hitting themselves or by yelling or screaming, learning to use words to get their needs met, learning to do hard things, but not not with such a push that it's hell to get there. It's about gradual change over time. So it's not an overnight intervention. But what what you can expect is improved independence and improved skills, gaining things uh, that you can access new environments. Uh, we've worked with kids on going shopping with families. Uh, I like to ask parents when we start up, you know, what is that? What what's your ideal outcome? What what are you looking for? And sometimes it's thirty minutes of peace and quiet. Although I don't think I've met a single parent, whether their kid has a developmental disability or not, who wouldn't say that. But sometimes it's things like go to the grocery store and not have to you know, wrangle my kid the whole time and chase him down the aisles. Like just go and get the groceries and head out. Be able to go to the 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 jump around house. Oh, what's it called at Northtown? It's oh, blanking uh, out of my mind. Is it um, Sky High or? Oh, I can't remember. It's been so long since I can't we've remember right now. But <laughs> right, but it it can be those little day to day things or things you might do with your family on a weekend that can be a challenge. And so sometimes parents really want to focus on that. We we can work towards that, and and we provide some supports, often one to one, sometimes small group, to to help kids and families get there and and get to that outcome that they need. And this actually, when you say it is hard work and it's not something that happens overnight. So for most um, families that you're working with, like you're talking about many hours of being in the home working programs. And a lot of it is too, you you really have to get everyone on the same, in the same game plan. So that again, because you're trying to form new habits and new routines. And the only way you can do that is through consistency by everyone a hundred percent of the time, because then that's where structure and consistency and, you know, the knowing what to expect and how to expect it. And so roughly, you know, what's kind of the minimum number of hours that you spend, you know, working with families per week versus kind of like on the high end of it for some of yours that need more support? There's there's a range. There's two modes of ABA therapy. One's called focus treatment. One's called comprehensive. 
focused is typically targeting one or two skills or behaviors or kind of very targeted approach. And that's typically anywhere from five on the low end to 15 hours a week, depending on how often we need to practice those things. Maybe it's a get out of bed independently and get ready for school independently routine. So we'll send a technician into the home and they'll help with prompting and supporting the kiddo and getting getting those skills kind of put in order and then really carefully fading out so that they're doing it more independently, not with us. And then comprehensive treatment is more globally skill-based, uh, where we're looking at skills in a variety of domains, communication, social skills, reducing some challenging behaviors gaining some daily living skills, uh, maybe some self-care, self-help skills. And we we look at all domains of development and identify areas of need, write a treatment plan around around those comprehensive focus. Those those treatment plans are typically uh, on the 20 to 40 hours a week range, Mm -hmm. uh, depending on depending on schedule constraints. Mm-hmm. We'll typically write a recommendation for what hours we need. And then we have a conversation with the family around, okay, what's going to be doable in day-to-day life. We don't like to be um, that so, so much extra effort that we're, we're dragging life down and we're kind of that extra burden. Uh, we're supposed to be a help and a support, but on the other hand, we, we do have a typically a minimum we're going to need to be able to actually make, make the progress we need to see yeah. for it to be useful treatment and useful time. And one of the things too, that I like to point out is, is that um, while wouldn't it be great if um, you know, we could work and, 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 treat autism by having technicians come into the home and doing all the work. But the reality of ABA is, is that it really is everyone that's working with that child has to be on the same page. And while the technician can come in and kind of show you um, how we're going to help them, what really what you're doing is you're, you're showing that the child that there are other ways that they can communicate their needs and wants in a way that actually it's better so that they choose um, to use different forms of communication versus undesirable behaviors or patterns that um, you're you're trying to phase out. And then the only way that you can um, really make that progress is you have to have everybody, you got to have the team on board. And so it's not something where the technicians are coming in and doing all the work and then it's like, okay, we'll see you tomorrow. Everybody has to be part of this because 100% consistency, 100% of the time is what then shows that child that 100% of the time, this is going to be a better strategy, strategy for me to use instead of the undesirable things that I have to resort to in order to get someone to listen or get me what I want to do. Is that is that fair to say, Jeff? Well, yeah, I think that's fair. Uh, I we typically try to design our treatment so that uh, it's it, it's going to be successful even if we're not perfect 100 percent of the time because none of us is perfect. Yeah, uh, we like to um, we spend a lot of time uh, working with parents and caregivers to have those conversations around what's going to be doable. Yeah, so we we want to. We want to work on Joey's tantrum behavior. We want to get him tantruming less and using his words more. Here are some options of what we can do when he tantrums. And here are some options of what we can do to when he communicates appropriately. And we have a conversation around what's going to work both clinically and for the family. Uh, and then it's our job to kind of balance the, the clinical need with not overloading all of day-to-day life. Um, because we go home at the end of the day, um, but when you're when you're living it day to day and you've got to implement a plan uh, all hours of the day, 
um, it, it's a little different. It needs to have a little flex here and there, sure. but it is, it is hard. It is hard work and it does require everyone being on the same page. If we have one caregiver um, doing one plan and another caregiver doing uh, plan B, then the only thing that's going to happen is our kiddo or our client is going to get confused. Mm-hmm. Okay, which, which rules are going on today? I'm not sure. And, and kids can learn to behave one way with one human and a different way with a different human. But when we're all in the same setting, we're not going to make the progress we need unless we're all on the same page. Yeah. So we spend a lot of time having conversations around that so that we're all agreeing to what it is we're going to do on the front end. Yeah. And one of the things I see and hear consistently is, is that, um, you know, when you have a family, you know, that is, you know, divorced families or, you know, separated parents where it's two different households, it's like, well, he doesn't do that at my house or she doesn't do it when she's with me. Or I also too, um, you know, have a lot of, um, just conversations with teachers where it's like, you know, we have this great system, we get this, you know, the expectations and we have a great behavior plan. Then we send them home at the end of the day and then they come back and they feel like they're starting all over. Um, Because again, what is happening at home isn't the same that's happening at school or, um, you know, parents will say, well, they don't do that when they're with me at home. So I don't know what you're doing at school. And that's where conversations have, we have to get the team on board with the same intervention plan and expectations because it just makes, again, it's confusing. It's a confusing message. And when you aren't strong in communication, um, it's really not surprising why you would then it see- makes It makes it more of a challenge. It really does. It really you does. Know, even, even humans with pretty significant disabilities can learn to behave one way in one setting and a different way in a different setting. But that doesn't mean it's easy to transition back and forth. Yeah. And so if we're all on the same page, we can really set our kids up for success in in gaining the skills they need and and learning how to interact with a world that isn't always perfect for them. Yes. Yeah. Because we can't, there's just too many variables in life that we live. We all know that as adults. And as much as we would love to have a very um, consistent life, our reality to be, you know, 100% predictable every single day. It just doesn't work like that. So I completely agree. Um, One of the things, of course, that we get asked a lot is, you know, like how much of my insurance will cover ABA? And so I was going to kind of have you talk to that because, you know, there are some challenges when we talk about insurance coverage for ABA. It's changed a lot over the years. Um, Back in the day when Isaac was little, we didn't have coverage for ABA. And so very few families could actually access that because you're private paying for that. And only the families that had the financial means could could receive those services. And um, that's changed now. So you want to kind of talk about what that looks like from an insurance perspective? Sure. That that actually changed because of some families in Washington and a class action lawsuit um, that that mandated ABA coverage. so it, it changed because of the dedication of some some parents who wouldn't stop fighting for what their kids needed. So I like to share that because it, it's a reminder that uh, all of us together can make the change happen that we need to. Uh, the reality is with insurance coverage for ABA, uh, it's not expansive enough for where, where the need is. Uh, it's better than it used to be. Um, but it's diagnosis and referral dependent uh, and plan dependent. There are still plans that ex- uh, private insurance plans that exclude ABA. Uh, Medicaid covers ABA in the state of Washington for uh, children diagnosed with autism uh, or other developmental disabilities if they have a referral from uh, what's called a center of excellence. 
Um, and that's a, a certain set of providers that's growing kind of every every yeah. year. So just to be clear um, on the Center for Excellence, um, certain types of providers that have a certain um, like educational background and, you know, and certification like board certified. Um, so those it's the first eligibility category. And then they actually have to go through a center of excellence training. So not every pediatrician is a center of Correct. excellence provider. They have to actually decide that they want to be a center of excellence provider and can diagnose autism. Um, so Correct. understand that, you know, it's not just every pediatrician, every medical doctor can do it. You have, they have to actually go through the specific designation for that. So. That's correct. And there, there's there's a variety of lists out there. <laughs> the list is changing every week, uh, so it's constantly getting updated. But the Healthcare Authority website uh, typically has a list. Uh, and I think uh, Isaac maintains a list as well. Yeah. So, and we always link the center of excellence provider list because you're right, it changes all the time. And so um, that's where we send people and just better to go to the state site so that you can see the current list of center of excellence providers. Um, Once, uh, once that diagnosis diagnosis and referral happens, then we go through an assessment process to really identify kind of what the needs are and how we can help. And then we have a conversation with caregivers around, here's what we're seeing as the need based on what they've told us, based on what we've seen, based on the records we've kind of reviewed. Um, and here's here's how much time and kind of what we think we would need to do to help. And we see if, uh, if that's going to work. Uh, there's not enough coverage yet. There's still denials for things like ODD. Uh, or diagnoses other than autism, where we we really could help. Uh, we had a a young boy who was having some significant behaviors uh, with family and sisters that we we did our best and fought for a while to get it through insurance, but the answer ends up being no, unless you've got all those center of excellence hoops. And uh, so that's where uh, we need to keep pushing and and fighting. Uh, and just tougher to for. Digress. Oh, yeah, go for it. I'm going to digress for a moment. It used to be, and you know this, um, in the olden days before insurance reform in the state of Washington, you know, if your child had a developmental delay, you could get qualified to receive insurance would cover certain therapy interventions. It was when your child was diagnosed with autism spectrum disorder that um, then all of a sudden your coverage stopped. And that's when it became very difficult to access um, ABA and different things. And now, isn't it interesting how we've changed now? It, the pendulum has swung all the way over to the other side where um, happy day if you get an autism spectrum diagnosis because it opens the door and they have to legally extend insurance coverage so that you can access ABA. Um, however, when you talked about ODD, oppositional defiance disorder, now it's kind of like, oh, that's just so sad because you know you don't then get that that little portion of your plan unlocked unless it's an ODD and autism spectrum disorder diagnosis. And so isn't it interesting how in just the span of 13, 14 years, how it's swung, the pendulum has swung now to the other side where um, doors don't get opened um, to you for certain types of interventions without that autism spectrum disorder diagnosis, which, you know, because you know, ABA would benefit you know, a wide range of individuals with different diagnoses, but yet insurance limitations are, there's still insurance limitations. So I'm glad you pointed out that we still have a lot of work to do and that we're not going to give up. We're going to keep pushing and lobbying to have more options open to us, but, you know, it's just kind of an interesting change of events that we still have to work on. I think it's access to care. And so families that um, may have not, you know, kiddos who may have not received an autism diagnosis 
but to get access to care. And now we're going to advocate with physicians so that we can have that diagnosis added on. Mm-hmm. And, and there's times uh, I think where part of what's changed in autism diagnostics and the very large range of humans that, that receive that label um, is part of part of the reason for that is that it's uh, it's such easier access to care mm-hmm. that we actually end up um, kind of shifting and the diagnosis ends up being less clear of what does an ASD diagnosis mean? Well, 40 years ago, it meant something different than it does today. The, the criteria have changed and, and that, that process kind of keeps shifting. So we, yeah. we've got to advocate for access to care with diagnoses other than ASD so that we're not, so that we don't end up just not. adding diagnosis to get access to care. Correct. Exactly. It's like we're starting the autism spectrum disorder. We're getting a lot of people put in that category um, and it's kind of murking the water, if you will. So what we need to do is instead, you know, like you say, open up, you know, the treatment options for different diagnoses so that we're not muddying the ASD category. So I completely agree. That's just a little side soapbox tangent that Jeff and I wanted to make sure that we talked about here. So um, would you mind talking to us a little bit about what Lilac City... Um, behavioral services provides in terms of services? Sure. I want to make sure um, so we, we give have you guys both, a plug. A plug opportunity. Yeah. Um, we have both clinic and home-based services. Uh, our clinic uh, typically uh, serves kids age two to six, although we have had a couple of kiddos continue clinic-based services after that, where there's still a need for that kind of focused intervention in a clinic setting. Our home-based program serves kids age 2 to 21, although we have several clients as they get older where families have talked to us. I don't intend on discharging anyone as they hit that age limit for age purposes alone. Uh, so we'll, we'll likely continue to grow with some of our clients. We support kids in schools. So we have a couple of kids in school-based programs where we're either supporting working with the school and providing support to the school, or we're actually uh, working directly with the school to provide support to one of their students. And then we do uh, have a social skills group uh, that's here at the office, although that is currently on hiatus, thanks COVID. And we look forward to getting it put back in place as soon as we can safely do so. I think right now it's just the risk around social distancing and having a number of families come together in that close of a context a social skills group is remarkably interactive, so it's not something we've been able to plug back in yet. Uh, we do have uh, immediate, uh, relatively immediate openings for daytime services. I think that's probably pretty common uh, in that ABA wait lists around town uh, get pretty long for evening availability, but during the day, there's there's more providers available. A lot of our staff, we fill up their evenings, but they would love more hours uh, and they're available during the day. Yeah. So, uh, and you know, I think families a, out there, we, yeah. we have a few. That's one of those things that we were just talking about the other day. One of the things that I think that we're finding during the waitlist question. Well, the waitlist question, yes, certainly. But I think what is an, an interesting shift in um, perspectives, Jeff, if we're talking about perspectives, COVID has changed our perspectives in a lot of different capacities. And I think one of the things that has shifted is, is that obviously school looks different now because some kids are going back on an AB model um, over in Idaho. Some of those kids are getting to go back full time. You know, some school districts are still, it's 100% remote learning. 
And so it has changed some parents' perspective of where they want to spend their time and focus. So before the expectation is, is that, well, they have to go to school because school, 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 they have to be in school because they have to be learning. But now since they've been home or there's this AB model or they only get to go, you know, two days a week for half days, or, you know, it's hundred percent virtual parents are now valuing less of what the schools are offering and are willing to take some of those daytime spots with an ABA provider. Because when you start having to measure where's your child going to receive the best services and make the most progress, it's not necessarily in school. And I would have argued that for some students, school was never going to be the place where they were going to receive um, the most services for the needs that they had at that time. And that, you know, some families would probably be better off pulling out of school or going late, doing a late start on, you know, certain days of the week so that they could access services in the home with an ABA provider or working to try and bring those ABA providers into the schools now. One of the questions we always get is how come ABA providers can't be in the schools? Because wouldn't that make sense? Because that's where they spend those daytime hours. And Jeff, um, so let's, we'll talk about this. Some school districts are supportive of that. And you do work with some students like in the home or in the, sorry, in the school setting, but there are some school districts that have a policy that because of confidentiality and student protection rights, ABA providers are not allowed in other school districts. Is that fair to say? Um, I think that's accurate. It's a complicated thing to dive in and have someone from an agency coming and working in the school and making sure everyone's on the same page. Uh, And I think there's times it's not gone so successfully. And so school districts have taken different approaches to that. In terms of the the valuing school and kind of the plugging kids into daytime services, that's always been a tough question for us because I don't ever want to advocate that a kid pull out of school to access ABA, that we, we are not allowed to be educational replacement. Uh, the insurance company won't pay for school replacement. So we can supplement and build skills that can help kids in school, but I've never wanted to pull kids out of school unless there's a really focused, intense need uh, to do so. Yeah. Um, sometimes we're not even going and we, we start to wonder how much are kids getting out of virtual time on the computer mm-hmm. um, or it doesn't take as much time. It's not a whole day. It's a chunk of the day. And then we've got this other chunk of time that we could be using to work on other things. And yeah. um, that's not a, a an opportunity to plug in uh, some services that I feel quite as torn about in terms of pulling kids out of school. Yeah, I think it's just that parents are starting to see firsthand that this, you know, some of these learning platforms currently right now because of COVID are not really sufficiently meeting the child's need. And if you're really wanting to help support your child, you got to look at the whole picture and what options are available to you. And you're right, like ABA isn't going to replace replace education, but you do need for some families that are having real extreme behaviors even prior to COVID. You know, you just have as a parent have to start making those decisions about like, how does your day need to look in order for things to improve? And, you know, if nothing's getting done at school, aside from you being called or them being having to, you know, clear classrooms and stuff, the school should be obviously employing some different, you know, options and, and really looking at it. But, you know, we just have to look at all of our options. I think right now, people are just starting, parents are starting to look at all of their options. We have, um, I just was listening to a, I, I think it was in the news, they were talking about overall how many um, 
less students, different school districts in our region have this year. So Spokane Public School, which I think is the second or third largest school district in the state of Washington, is down 2,000 students from last year because people have chosen to pull their children out and do homeschooling instead because they don't want their children plugged into a computer all day long for learning. And so they were talking about all the different school districts and overall on a state level, how many um, less students are actually being served by public education right now um, because parents are just looking at different options. And so again, Jeff is not advocating, pull your child out of school so that you can access other services. It's just that parents overall, what I'm seeing are being much more critical and starting to make different decisions based off of, of what they feel is best for their children. So with that range, I want to also just say, Jeff, you treat kids, I say kids, but um, individuals up to age 21 and probably beyond because some of it's kind of a moving target for you guys in that you're not going to just end services for um, a person because of their 21st birthday, but not um, one of the things that I've seen is that not all clinics actually serve that age range. And so that's one thing I just appreciate that you talked about that is that I'm sorry, but Jeff, um, and, and maybe, and I know you won't disagree with me, but I don't think that anyone stops learning at 21. I just don't see it. I'm still learning. And I, I'm well, I, I hope not. I'm, I, I'm still doing my best to learn each and every day. So yeah. And, uh, yeah. I, I think I'm 29. You're 29. Yes. I'm much I, older than you. I'm yeah, 34. For, for the next few years, at least. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and that's the thing is that it's nice to know that ABA centers are actually serving um, older students as well or older individuals, because, again, you'll never convince me that, oh, 21, we're done learning because um, we know that that's not the case. So, Well, and there's actually something called the Mental Health Parity Act, uh, which means that age caps or arbitrary stipulations on insurance coverage when there's a medical need uh, are not actually legal. Uh, so uh, the t- typical age 21 caps and in insurance plans are something that you can push on. You just have to sometimes be persistent to get the approvals that you need to continue work at that point. Yeah. And I have to be honest, I'm currently dealing with one in my own personal life and I can share it because it's me. Um, but, you know, it's a little different because we have a self-funded insurance plan. So they get to be a little bit more they get to choose the different services um, that they will cover. And one of the things that we're running up against for my son, Caleb, who is 12 and will be 13 in January, is is that at a certain point, insurance companies don't love to continue to provide speech therapy services for communication. Caleb has an expressive and receptive language processing disorder. So he's very high functioning. He's conversational, but he struggles with receptive processing and expressive, being able to articulate those thoughts, feelings, ideas, and other important information. And so right now we're currently working on having all of his providers team together to explain why at this age, even though it's not an injury or an accident, he still needs to receive those services. So, um, and again, it's not a flat denial. It's just that we have to, you know, is, and it was a soft denial is what they like to call it is that, you know, we need extra hoops, the extra hoops. And 
And I'm your girl. I'm willing to jump through your extra hoops um, because I'm not going to let anybody tell me that my child doesn't get to have those um, benefits extended. So again, it's just um, don't be discouraged if you're like us and you have a self-funded medical plan from your provider or your employer. Um, it just means that you have to provide just um, more documentation to make your case. And so um, nothing is hard and fast. So one final question before we have to go. Jeff, talking about center of excellence providers, um, there's a wide range out there of providers that can diagnose autism. And one of the interesting things I have seen over the years is that when providers diagnose a um, student that or a, a child that is higher functioning, so that ASD level one classification, oftentimes they don't refer for ABA because they don't need it, right? But with those kids that are ASD level one, so they're higher functioning, they still have behaviors because they get frustrated. They don't, they're not able to regulate through complicated ranges of emotion. And so you do see behaviors in oppositional defiance. And so so um, I just think it's interesting because the perception that I've seen out there is, is that ASD level one individuals don't often receive the um, referral or the suggestion by providers for ABA providers. Do you think that that is something that you see in your, like, because you obviously do this day in and day out, and I am a nonprofit that works with a variety of families. And so it's, oh, it's just an interesting trend. And so I want to see what your, what your perspective is on that. You know, I, I don't know if I've noticed that pattern, but I don't know that we would, we, we typically connect with families post referral. So mm -hmm. I, I wouldn't have the best gauge of whether or not that pattern's occurring. Uh, what I, for us, in terms of identifying what we need to work on, the level one, two, or three isn't the most uh, predictive element. It's really about need. Uh, the diagnosis is uh, access to care and and the evaluation report can be pretty informative uh, depending how extensive it is to help us get to know uh, the kid and family before we meet them a little bit but we really at that point once uh, once we're doing our assessment we need to focus on what are the needs of this human in front of us and so it's not about a number on a paper it's what what works what what can you do what what environments are easy in day-to-day -day life and and do you enjoy what are a challenge where's the buttons a colleague and i like to call ourselves professional button pushers because part of our job is identifying what environments work for you and are and are comfortable and enjoyable and then where are those buttons where are the challenges where are the triggers because then our job is to work on those and we do that by presenting them really carefully not all at once and not not to overload, but hey, when this kind of thing happens, we've got to know how to respond. And it can be something simple. Uh, some kids have trouble if you put their socks on the wrong way. Although oh. that uh, that bugs the crap out of me. Yeah. Um, but, agree, yeah. you know, I'll, I'll change my socks, right? Today I'm wearing sandals. But for some kiddos, that's enough of a trigger that we, we start having a real hard time. It's more about need for us than it is di that, that diagnosis category. Yeah. Do you know, Jeff, that's funny they should say that about socks is that it used, when Caleb was smaller, the hardest part of my day was the socks. And that would actually set the tone for the whole stinking day. If I'm being for honest, the whole day, the whole day. And so the whole sock thing is it was a very critical process because if you didn't do it correctly, it would set the tone for the whole day. And I guess maybe Jeff, where I, I probably didn't explain myself on that is, is that oftentimes when you're talking about, I, I agree with you, I don't like the one, two, and three, because I don't think it's 
as clean as a one, two, and a three when you're talking about an ASD diagnosis. But a lot of times when they're high, when you're in the ASD level one and you're higher functioning, oftentimes what I see providers doing is, oh, they just need um, to work on their social skills. And so that's not necessarily something that ABA is known for working on. So a lot of times I'm having families contact me. Okay, so what type of provider do I need to access because my child who's um, ASD level one needs to work on social skills. And so I guess that's where but the problem is with social skills, some of the social skills might be deteriorating because behaviors, they get frustrated, they're not regulating, and then they're having meltdowns or they're rigid in terms of how they want to interact with their peers. And so that's the thing where um, I guess I didn't lead you into that one very well is, is that, you know, again, it's thought to be social skills is really what they need and can't an ABA provide that's not ABA. skills? Yeah, it's not ABA. Yeah. But yet you have to look at why is the community, why are social social skills falling apart. And so I think that you could analyze some of why relationships don't work, you know, and what barriers there are. So you could look at it from an ABA per- perspective. Am I right? I mean, do you think? Oh, yeah. And our social skills group, we program those kind of things uh, every week. Like something as simple as I want to play this game and you want to play that game. How do how do we come to agreement on what game we're going to play? That's a tough challenge to navigate, uh, especially if you're a human is really stuck on, no, I want to do it this way. And um, that's something we can practice. We learn how to compromise. We learn how to talk about it. Okay, we play your game first, and then we play my game, and we each get a little of what we're going to do, or we play yeah. yours today and mine tomorrow. Agreed. And you had talked early on about the two types of therapy, like strategies focused versus kind of the bigger picture. I can't remember what was the term that you used for that one. Comprehensive. Comprehensive. So when we talk about social skills, that could be focus-based. Some of what you're looking at is looking at a specific set of problems when it talks, when you're talking about social barriers and working through a very focused kind of, here's where our where our focus is going to be. Is that what that Oh, yeah. Means? Oh, yeah. That That's... Uh... Absolutely on point. Uh, I, we, I mean, there's a whole set of things we can work on in, in terms of in the context of a social skills group, um, winning well or not winning. <laughs> uh, what happens when you don't win? Um, don't talk to me about what, winning what, at how, how do you handle I losing? Evil. I get evil at Monopoly. Monopoly is not a game I play. <laughs> I tried. You, you, were, you, were, you were a table flipper, weren't you? You just flip the table when you're losing. I, and I so, still love that, it for that, you. That, that's not how you. That's not how you make and keep friends, Holly. I no one wants to play Monopoly <laughs> with me anymore. There, there's some really good evidence-based social skills curricula out there, and so typically our social skills group has kind of a lesson format. Uh, well, we come in, we, we get settled entry tasks, we do a lesson, uh, we practice, uh, and then we've got a game. And so we're we're doing kind of a structured talk about the lesson, structured practice, and then a little more independent practice in the context of a more day-to-day life activity. And we've had several friendships develop between kids in, uh, in the social skills group. And then they start hanging out outside of, uh, outside of the group or going and doing things together on the weekends. And um, it's an opportunity for parents to connect as well during pickup or drop-off or uh, during, a, during a parent connect. We're looking at modifying some of that so we can do some video parent connects uh, uh, post, post-COVID world. Yeah. Uh, and I'm hoping to get our social skills group back up and running as soon as we possibly can. Awesome. Well, thank you, Jeff. I'm not going to take up any more of your time. Thanks um, for having me. 
Yes, but I appreciate you being able to shed some light on ABA because again, these are things that I see very often questions posted online just about ABA and just understanding the ins and outs of what your modality actually looks like. So I appreciate that you gave me your time today. Um, we will put a link for that Center of Excellence um, provider list for providers that are um, looking for that. And um, also we'll put a link to your clinics so people can find out more information about you guys. Uh, so thank Please you again. Visit us on the web. We'll work on revamping the website soon, but Ooh. it's still there at the moment. All right. Sounds fun. If it's down, it'll be down for a day. Okay. Sounds good. All right. Well, I'm going to wrap up this episode of Isaac's Autism Wild podcast. Thanks for joining us. And that's it for now. If you want to be notified of our next podcast release, be sure to hit subscribe and just remember we're all in this together. So find your tribe and hold them tight.